Hi, I'm Brett Johnson, former United States Most Wanted cyber criminal, now good guy. The United States Secret Service, well, they called me the original internet godfather. Now, I got that title by committing 39 felonies. Well, okay, I committed a lot more felonies than that, but I pled guilty to 39 because if you don't plead guilty in the federal system, well, you got to take that shit to trial. You will lose and they will put you under the prison. So I pled guilty to 39 felonies. I was placed on the United States Most Wanted list. I escaped from prison. <laughs> well, okay. If there's one part that I think is funny, it's that escape bullshit. I escaped from prison and I built and ran the first organized cybercrime community. It was called Shadow Crew. It was a precursor of today's darknet and darknet markets laid the foundation for the way modern cybercrime channels operate today. Those 39 felonies that I pled guilty to, well, they helped to refine modern financial cybercrime as we now know it today. And yes, oh yes, that shit does land one in prison, deservedly so. Now look, there's a whole story behind all that that we really don't have time for today because today, right now, it's time for an episode of The Brett Johnson Show. Today's episode, addiction, when we come back. Okay, so we are back to The Brett Johnson Show. Today's episode, addiction. And I got to say, you know, every now and then, there comes these one of these episodes where, you know, shit gets real for those who have... For those who may have seen Hunt for the Wilder People, shit gets real again. So, yeah, sometimes shit gets real, and this is one of these episodes. I had, uh, there was a gentleman on Twitter, the Justified Madman, who asked me to do an episode on addiction because I did this Lex Fridman show. And during the show, I made the comment that someone who is addicted cannot love anything except the addiction. And I was talking about myself, but. I believe that regardless of whatever an individual may be addicted to, be it drugs, be it alcohol, be it crime, be it toxic relationships, whatever that addiction is, that individual can only love it, not the addiction. So we're going to talk about that today. And I got to be honest, this is one of these things that it is not going to be an easy conversation for me to have because it's going to require a lot of Brett Johnson, me, opening up about things that I typically really don't open up and talk about, but it's needed. And I, when Justified Madman asked me to do it, I knew it was going to be difficult. And I also knew at that when he asked me, I knew that it was something that I needed to do in order to help me grow more as a person. That's this Brett Johnson show, right? I mean, this is the stuff where, you know, we talk about cybercrime, we talk about cybersecurity, crime in general, some, some topics in the news sometimes, but we also talk about this journey that I'm going through of becoming a better person, of trying to grow. I mean, I fully believe it's, I, I mentioned this, I think on the last podcast, if not, let me mention it right now, if I'm not. I believe that the reason that we are here on this planet Two reasons. The first is to help one another, and the second is to know who we are. I don't think there's anything more important than knowing who we are as individuals, why we do the shit we do, 
and then working to be better people and working to help each other. I think that's, if you want to know why we're here, that's why I think we're here. I don't give a shit about your political beliefs, your ideological beliefs, your religious beliefs. I don't care. I think that the reason we're here are those two things. Know who we are, help each other. All right. Not very difficult when you think about it. Of course, a lot of the times, you know, people are, you know, I'm, I'm on Twitter. I got, I got like 4,000 followers on Twitter. I'm happy with that. You know, all these other people got a couple of million. I got like 4,000. I'm like, shit, that's a whole lot of people. I guess I could get more followers if I were more, you know, if I, if I just came in and raised some hell. And I've tried that every now and then, but my heart is just not in trying to game the algorithms by upsetting people with stupid ass remarks. You know, I was read an article the other day about uh, just uh, uh, Jordan Peterson. And I don't know the guy. I've read some of his stuff. I've not watched his show, but I've read some of his stuff. I like some of the comments. I do. He made a dumbass comment. He commented about, I guess it was the, the cover of Sports Illustrated had an overweight model on there. And he made the comment of, well, she'll never be beautiful regardless. You know what? He makes the comment. Let's be honest. Let's, because somebody, here's, here's the thing. Somebody out here has to tell the fucking truth about things. We, we live in a world where no one wants to be truthful anymore. They always want to game a system. They want to hide behind words, everything else. Somebody has to say the shit that needs to be said, and somebody's got to be truthful. The reason Peterson says it is because the Twitter algorithms, the YouTube algor alg algorithms and all that crap, it games more toward conflict than it does trying to help people and be open and honest. If you're if you're just being all lovey-dovey, guess what? That algorithm ain't there to help you. But if you're arguing with people, if you're pushing people's buttons, guess what? Oh, yeah, those, those posts and all that, they tend to go viral a hell of a lot more than the posts that don't do that. So that's why Peterson says it. And, of course, he gets all the blowback he gets in the news. He gets his name out there and everything else. Do I think he believes that shit? I don't think he cares. Honestly, I don't think he cares. And I ain't got nothing against the guy. Hell, I want to be on his show. I think he's got some really good points out there. But there ain't no need to lie about it. You know, it's just part of business, I guess. You know, upsetting people. And I, I just, my heart is not in that. I just, I can't do that, man. I've tried, Lord knows I've tried sometimes on Twitter. I, you know, you'll see me make a post. And that's that's Brett Johnson getting that itch of, oh, I want some more followers. Let's see if I can push somebody's button. But my heart's not in. It's not. I can't do that shit. Moving right along. So before we get into the addiction episode, there's a few things, a few nifty things to talk about. Some viewer comments, things like that. I was on uh, LinkedIn just before I started to record today. And I'm going to share my screen here so you guys see this staff. Share my screen. And I saw this nifty little picture here. It's uh, it's from Reddit. And it's a picture of, I guess it's in the dollar store or whatever. It looks like a dollar store. Uh, I think that is a general dollar. So it's in a dollar store and somebody has hung up a sign that says, gift card scam. Customers are receiving phone calls saying they missed jury duty, missed a bill payment, et cetera, et cetera. These are scams. No government organization will ever call or request gift cards. So I saw this. Somebody posted this picture on LinkedIn. I saw it. And I saw. I, I said to myself, "Fucking brilliant! I love that. 
because that's exactly the kind of notices that need to be put up there. You know, the, the thing is, I don't know how many people are on, you know, are in cybersecurity that are listening to this or in fraud prevention that are listening to this podcast. I know I have some. I do. I know I have some. And I, I notice frequently on Twitter, not on Twitter, uh, frequently on LinkedIn, there's a whole load of people who like to talk about how are we going to educate the consumers so that they don't buy gift cards in these scams. And I got to tell you, that is exactly the wrong philosophy to have. The wrong philosophy. You are not going to make the consumer do anything. The smartest person that I ever saw that commented on anything like this, he was uh, he's moved on from that point. But he was head of fraud at Western Union. And I was brought in for a, um, for a keynote presentation. Toolcase brought me in for a keynote presentation in Vail, Colorado during the off season. And it was outstanding. Love Vail. the first time I've ever been there. But I, I, I listened to this man talk and he made the comment that if a scammer can get that individual out of the house, that there is absolutely nothing that you can do to keep that individual from sending the scammer money. And he's absolutely right. He's absolutely right. So now this sign here, I think goes a long way toward doing that. I know I just kind of went against what I just said, but bear with me because sometimes I get a little hypocritical up there. <laughs> but what I'm saying is, is that a lot, a lot of fraud prevention people, they, they try to talk about handling their problems by educating the consumer not to perform that action or to perform a specific action. That does not work when we're talking about fraud prevention. I'm going to give you some statistics, all right? Talking about multi-factor authentication, MFA. We all know it's a good tool to use, and we all know we should be using it. But when you're talking about, unless it's enforced, unless a, a, a system, a financial institution, or a merchant, or something like that, forces an individual to use it, and they're not because it causes friction, that individual is going to go someplace else because they don't like doing that bullshit. But unless it's forced, about a 12 to 14% adoption rate is a high rate, which means the other 88% of individuals don't do it. Credit freezes. Credit freezes have been free since September 18th, 2018. It's a, it's a great tool. It is a great security tool. tool. It stops all new account fraud dead in its tracks. Free. It's a great tool. Yet only 12% of the U.S. population have a credit freeze in place. Passwords. Passwords are one of the, the primary points of compromise for someone to commit cybercrime. 80% of the population uses the same or similar passwords and login credentials across multiple websites. 90% of every single attack uses known exploits. It's the stuff we, we continue to preach about that no one's doing that causes the issue. So if you're one of these fraud prevention people, and I've seen this argument time and time again on LinkedIn, all right? We need to educate the consumer. I agree you do need to educate the consumer, but you cannot rely 
on that consumer to perform the security that you need to be performing on your site or in your business. You cannot do that. If you're, if you're relying on that consumer to be the last line of defense in your system, you have already failed because you are not going to make that consumer do anything. What you need to be doing is training your employees, educating your employees, putting the right tools and technology in place so that this fraud doesn't happen. So you've got somebody, remember I said the, the head of fraud, he's left, he's left the company now, he's moved on to other things. But at the time, the head of fraud for Western Union, he made the comment that, hey, if a scammer gets someone to leave the house, you're not going to stop them from sending money. Now, bear that in mind. If I am scamming somebody on gift card fraud and I convince them that I'm a government agency and I send out, send them out to the Western, to the Dollar General store to get gift cards or Walmart to get gift cards or what have you, they are going to get those gift cards unless Walmart or the Dollar General doesn't sell them. Now, what does help, what kind of, it depends on how convinced that consumer is, I believe. That big sign at Dollar General, that not only helps the consumer, but it also helps the employees that are there because they're looking at that damn sign every day. They see somebody come up with X amount of dollars, like 10 gift cards or five gift cards or several hundred dollars worth of gift cards. You know what? Why are you buying them? And that's not, you don't have to be an asshole when you ask that as the person behind the cash, the cash machine. You know, hey, what do you, hey, I see you buying gift cards. Hey, what's going on? You know, you're very friendly asking that kind of stuff. There are ways to train employees where you notice that. Not only that, but when you're buying that many gift cards, that transaction is recorded someplace. It can be flagged almost immediately. Do you actually process the gift cards? Well, no, sometimes you don't. I'll give you an example. There was a lady that got defrauded and the scammer convinces her to go into Sephora. For those who don't know, Sephora is a skin skincare, you know, cosmetic type store, sells all these little, little different skin products and makeup and body washes and all this other stuff. Scammer convinces lady to go in and she buys $30,000 worth of Sephora gift cards. Now, what's wrong with that picture? Yes, the lady should have known better and understood that the government doesn't need $30,000 worth of Sephora gift cards, okay? That's a fact, but take that out of the equation, all right? Now, she's done it, or she's wanting to do it. Should the should the cash, the, the person that's working at Sephora that sold her those gift cards, should they maybe, probably, somewhat, sort of, thought to themselves, man, this is kind of odd. Who in the hell ever buys $30,000 worth of Sephora gift cards in here? I ain't never seen a transaction like that. So yes, the cashier should have known something was wrong. So the cashier should have had some training on this bullshit. At the same time, the woman buying the cards, she's not buying them with cash. She's buying them with a debit card or a credit card. So she swipes, inserts the chip, that transaction is seen. Should the processor, should the, the issuing agency have noticed that something was wrong, that this was outside of the normal behavior for this particular individual that's buying cards? Yes. Yes. Not only for the individual, but for the store itself. This is outside of the norm. Hey, 
put full brakes on. Let's find out what the hell's happening. Let's call this customer and figure out what's going on. Ah, ah. So all these people that, and I see this argument often, often. I see this argument when it comes to gift cards. I see this argument when it comes to uh, peer-to-peer payment systems that we need to educate the customer. Okay, yeah, by all means, educate the customer. But at the same time, educate your employees and put the real, the right tools and technology in place so that you stop this fraud from happening. Because if you're relying on that employee to be your line of defense, you have already lost. Okay, and what do you lose? You lose trust for one thing. Trust, trust is obtained in droplets, but it's lost in buckets. Think about all those people who are losing money on Zelle fraud. Do you think that they trust Zelle after they've been defrauded? No, they don't. Do you think that they trust that financial institution after the financial institution says, oh, we can't cover you because you freely gave the money over to this fraudster? Yep, it's your fault. Nope, they don't trust that financial institution either. So you lose a whole lot at the end of the day. I'm going to get off my soapbox now. We're going to move on to the next topic. Ha! <laughs> so I had uh, back to LinkedIn. Christine from Minnesota. She sent me, actually, before we, Christine, I'll get to you in a second. I wanted to make another comment. We did a show. The last show I did was with Justin Pierce. I want to bring Justin back in. Justin's going to, we're going to talk about Stuxnet because I like Justin. I do. I like Justin. So we're going to bring Justin back in. We're going to talk about Stuxnet. Justin's going to be a little bit more comfortable because he was not very comfortable. It was sometimes evident he was not horribly comfortable talking to loud ass Brett Johnson. So we're going to get Justin back in. He's going to get comfortable over time. He's going to, he knows his shit. He's going to talk about Stuxnet. We're going to talk about that because that's another one of these little fascinating attacks. So we're going to talk about Stuxnet. Don't know when it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. We did a show on solar winds and the people who have, have listened to so, that solar winds episode. I mean, it is really, I mean, oh my God. You know, SolarWinds made all these claims, you know, but they didn't have a security team. They didn't have a CISO. They didn't have a password policy. They had uh, these these hard-coded passwords and all this. I mean, just a nightmare. No wonder they were friggin' hit. And it occurred to me after we recorded over the past couple of days, you know, this idea. And it doesn't matter if it's SolarWinds. doesn't matter if it's your boyfriend, girlfriend, your employer, your employee. Doesn't matter. Your preacher, doesn't matter who it is, but just because somebody says something, don't make it so. Okay? I understand that. Goebbels had this, this thing called the big lie. That's the number 29 of, of propaganda. There were 29, 28, and then Goebbels invented this thing called the big lie. And the big lie says the bigger the lie you tell, the more people who will believe it. Well, solar winds told a whole shitload of big lies, but the thing is, is that just because somebody says something doesn't make it so. So please bear that in mind. That's one of that should be one of our big things where we understand we're talking to somebody, they're telling us something. Just because they say it, don't make it real. Trust but verify. Trust but verify. You know, with these days, I'm not. I'm not a religious guy. 
I am not a religious guy. If I went to church, the church would probably fall in on me. I'm not a religious guy, but I am aware that a lot of preachers out there say a whole lot of shit that ain't right. It ain't in the book. Okay. Or they're misconstruing the book or whatever. And it's not just preachers. It's a whole lot of security people out there that say a whole lot of shit that ain't right. That ain't, that ain't even real. That ain't happening. So verified. If I tell you something, verify it. Okay. Verified it. Ain't, if you've got a question about it, verify it. Over time, you'll see that I, I got, if something needs to be said, I'll say it. And I'm going to, you know, if I get something wrong, I'll tell you that too. If I know I've got it wrong, I'll come back in and say, Hey guys, I, I screwed up. I got it wrong. But I'm my my job is to say the shit that needs to be said, and to, as, because somebody at the end of the day also needs to be telling the truth about these things. Just say it. Just be truthful. Guess what? If you if you're truthful, and I spent years being a liar. But if you're truthful, somebody you may upset somebody. By God, they can't say you're not telling them telling it like it is and being honest about it. All right. And at the end of the day, that's what matters. So Christine ha, from Minnesota, she sent me a message, a question. And she is like, uh, Brett, is this true? A corporate printer connected to an open Wi-Fi network located in the top floors of a high rise building can be penetrated using a simple combination of a drone, a smartphone and a sniffing software application. If your communication ports, Wi-Fi network, and access to networked devices are left open and unprotected, hacking the network is a piece of cake. True. And she says she's curious about that. So, yeah, 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 it's true. Um, yeah, you could do that. Notice I'm hesitant. And the reason I'm hesitant is I, I need everyone to understand that just because a criminal can do something doesn't mean that they will do something. Okay. For example, think about RFIDs, RFID. All right. We've seen in a lot of conferences, you see, or you see advertisements for wallets that block RFID hackers. You know, a hacker can walk down the street and he's got an RFID reader in his backpack and he can capture everyone's RFID data as he simply walks down the street. So you'd better buy this $70 wallet that blocks all those RFID signals that are coming out of your wallet. No. Now, can a, an attacker do that? Yes. Will an attacker do that? No, they won't. Okay, they won't. An attacker is going to think about the motivations of crime, of online crime, status, cash, ideology. So in a situation like this, they're looking for cash. At the end of the day, they're looking for cash. You know, you're, you're trying to get information, access, data, or cash. Most of it, most of the time, it leads to cash. If you're targeting a high-rise building, apartments in a building, something like that, you're ultimately looking for cash, access to get cash or data from people, things like that. There are much easier ways to do that. Yeah, it's very common for criminals to go through printers to get access to your network. But I've made the point that, you know, 41% of all the routers have the default password. You can fish out information as easy. There's, there's several different easier ways. You don't have to use a drone or a pineapple or crap like that to, um, to get access. So the answer, Christine, is yes, it could happen. But 
I don't think that it is because there are much easier ways to get data or access or cash than, than having to go through all of that. Okay. Much easier ways to do that. That this, if I was looking at stuff like that, I'd be, uh, you know, we've played some war games before, ran through some scenarios, attack scenarios where, you know, a drone's dropping off a pineapple on top of a, uh, a, a, a corporate building and then shutting down the networks or taking over things and stuff like that. But that that's for, for most common people, that is really not an accurate attack vector. Okay. So, uh, understand why you're going to be attacked, design security around that, understand that a criminal, though a criminal can do any number of things, a criminal is not going to do a, is not going to invest a lot of time and effort in something that he can get someplace else much easier, much more cost effective for the criminal. Okay. So just, just bear that in mind. And I use that RFID as an example of that. Just because a criminal can do something doesn't mean a criminal will do something. Another example for that, there's an individual on LinkedIn who is adamant about talking about fabricated credit card numbers. You know, oh, criminals all the time are using uh, the credit card algorithm to fabricate numbers, and then they use those numbers to defraud rental sites or restaurants and stuff like that. Again, this is another one of these examples of a just because a criminal can do something doesn't mean they will. For someone to say that, that a criminal that, that a bunch of criminals are using algorithmic numbers like that, generated card numbers. To commit fraud is really a complete misunderstanding of the way organized cybercrime operates and the way data is used, gathered, exchanged, everything else. You really don't know what the hell you're talking about. All right. Just because you can do it doesn't mean a criminal will do it. And I'll talk about that more in the future. That's one of those pet peeves of mine. So moving right along. Ha! Moving right along. All right, so uh, some other comments had a gentleman by the name of, uh, this is from um, the Lex, episode 14. He made the comment. He said, the frankness is refreshing. Your story is epic. I had just gotten into IT. I remember when Shadow Crew got nailed, you were the talk of the town in Boston. I didn't know about social engineering back then. I'm wondering if part of the game for you was figuring out how to pull what you wanted through the system and problem-solving, wargaming it all out. As a matter of fact, I love me some puzzles. I do. I absolutely love, 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 love trying to figure my way through systems in unconventional ways. You know, that, that was always part of it with me, you know, trying to figure out how... Uh, how security systems were working, how to bypass those, what tools were needed, you know, what I could do with data that I had stolen, anything else like that. And that's, I was really big about that. I spent hours upon hours uh, today and I would, I would buy these little physical, you know, puzzles and things like that, that I always love to do. So yes, that was always part of it with me always. And I still love that today. You know, today I'm on the good guy's side of the fence and today the, the puzzles are, how you look at criminal groups and communities, how they operate and trying to figure out how to gain entry to that, how uh, 
how the crimes that they're committing, how to secure companies, you know, victims against that. So it's it's still puzzle solving today, and I still enjoy the hell out of it. Anybody who knows me can can certainly attest to that. So another comment. Uh, this is from Jr. Made two days ago on episode twenty four, finding your way. Uh, he says, "I recently seen you, Brett, on the Concrete Podcast, and cybercrime and all that is way out of my wheelhouse. However," Hearing your story and everything from childhood on, man, you really didn't have it easy at all. Seeing you being so open about everything really hit me hard as I'm going through some valleys in my own life, trying to figure out my own path to get out of the lows and find some purpose. You give a guy hope, seeing and hearing your words have been very powerful. I appreciate you doing your own content and can't wait to learn from you and also more about you. It sure is a breath of fresh air. Thanks again, Brett. You know, um, I got to you know, that this, I was, uh, I was years being a despicable person. Um, you know, you can read some of the comments on Lex Fridman. There are still people, not very many. I mean, most people see that I've turned my life around and they, they, they're very happy about that. But there are still some people out there that consider me a piece of shit. And I understand that because I was. I was. I still think I am to a large degree. I'm, I'm, I keep trying to be better. But I've not forgiven myself for, uh, for the things I've done, the people that I've hurt. No, I don't think there, to me, there is no real forgiveness for that. I, I can only try to uh, make sure that my choices now are healthy choices, and I I work to help people now and not hurt people. Okay, so I understand that, but I you know I read something like Jr. sent, and there's a reason that I talk more. Uh, don't just talk about cybercrime and cybersecurity and and these issues. I also talk about you know going through the shit, about turning my life around, about some of the difficulties that I'm having currently, and things like that. I think it's important to let people know that yes. You can change things. Yes, by God, you can change things. You can make that decision to turn your life around. And, and to do that, it requires, you've got to have help from people. People have to be able, willing to help you. But the, I, I really believe that the great thing about human beings is human beings want to help each other. They want to. That's the that's the insidious thing about scams is that human beings want to want to help people. They want to trust people, and then a scammer like I used to be uses that against people in order to victimize them and profit by that. But you know, I, when I turned my life around, when I made that decision, I had people there who believed in me, who gave me that opportunity, and I fully believe those people are out there. So, you know, JR, I know you're going through some, some dips and some valleys and everything else, but there's a reason that I talk about more than just crime. I talk about turning things around because I know that you can. I know anybody that's out there that's a victim of crime, a victim of abuse and a dysfunctional relationship, toxic people around them, life of crime, whatever. I know if I can turn my life around, by God, I know you can turn your life around. It takes some help. It takes some help. You can't do it yourself. You can't do it yourself. You can make the decision to do it, but you've got to 
be able to rely on other people. And, and that's one of the things a lot of people like me, by God, that's a big step to take, trusting people to help you. You know, I had to, that was very difficult for me to do is, is letting somebody help me. All right. But you, we've got to, to understand that it takes that. It takes that. So JR, I appreciate you sending that message. I got full faith in you, man. If, if there's anything I can do to help you or assist you, do not hesitate to reach out. I truly mean that. I truly mean that. Okay. Find me on Twitter, find me on LinkedIn. You can send me an email. You can make a comment in the show. I read all the comments, every single one of them. So don't hesitate to reach out. Okay. So, uh, Another comment. This is from Christopher, Christopher Anderson, Mr. Anderson. So I met Christopher. I actually drove when I was doing the Anglerfish podcast. I drove my ass all the way to Arkansas to meet this man because he had been through the shit too. And I, that's one of the things I do. I'm wanting to talk to you. If there's, if I'm not horribly busy, chances are sometimes I'll get in the car and I'll drive my ass over to see you, meet you, and talk to you. All right? That's just one of the things I do. But uh, Christopher has been through the shit. He responded. Uh, this is, again, on episode 24, Finding Your Way. He, he made a, a thread talking about some of the stuff I was talking about in that episode. I'm going to read his response. He says, I must pipe in. I know that you know, but for anyone who might read this, I was in a relationship where my place was very similar to your father's place. You hit the nail on the head when you said essentially that you have to disengage completely from those toxic people. That applies especially to your mother and to the relationship I was in. They were honest to God gaslighters who are far beyond manipulators, liars, narcissists, and a host of pathological behaviors. Those people will compromise your soul and make you feel horrible for not giving them more. You are exactly right about being around people you want to be like. I would like to offer an alternative approach, although that I understand that not everyone can adopt it. I feel that it starts with forgiving oneself. This is not forgiveness of a moral wrong necessarily, but it encompasses setting your own self free from the past and leaving the bad shit there. Once you're in that place where you're ready to move forward, always move forward. I would say to think of the things that you've always dreamed of that for you would be awesome and then work toward that. Don't do it half-assed. If it's that awesome to if it's that awesome to you, it's worth failing for. By doing this, it's not about the days that go by. It's about the life you fill them with. It's the process you become some, in the process, you become somebody you choose to become. It does, it does leave you in control. It places what was there and you are building whatever that is. All along, those things that had been become a long time ago. It's not a mask. You are who you are becoming. The past is more easily managed. If you go back and visit, it's easy to leave because you have a new, a now space. It's amazing, really. All you have to do is decide that you are going to go grab your awesome and do it. You know, I, Chris, 
I can't disagree with it. I can't. I mean, that is certainly, you're absolutely right, man. You're absolutely right. I can't do that. <laughs> I can't do it. You know, I, I, uh, it's hard for me to, uh, to let go of that past. It is. And I don't know. I think a, a lot of it has to do with who I am and what I do. You know, I, I fully believe that what I do today and who I am is a culmination of every single person I've met, everything I've done, and everything that has been done to me. So it's hard for me to, to disengage from that. I choose. I don't know if I want to forgive myself. Okay. Because I think by me not forgiving myself, it's not getting on a cross. <laughs> it's not any shit like that. But I think by that I'm just trying to think it through. I think that by not forgiving myself, I work harder to, uh, to do the job that I do today. All right. So, uh, it's not that I, I, maybe I could, maybe I'll get to that point where I can leave that stuff behind. But to me right now, I like, I truly like who I am. I do. I like who I am. I like the job that I do. I know I do a good job at this stuff. And, um, but you know, the, the solution that you gave, I think is a, is a very good solution that I think a lot of people need to hear. And a lot of people can certainly implement, but I think for me, there's some of the, some parts of that I can't, and I'm happy with that. I'm at peace with that. All right. I'm at peace with that. All right. So we're moving right along. The justified madman on Twitter asked if I would do an episode on addiction. So I guess that's what, this is not, this is not an easy conversation for me. Uh, let's get it out of the gate that I was never addicted to drugs. All right, my mom was addicted and uh, I lived in that. As a result of that, I was always scared to drink or do any type of drugs. Uh, for example, in my entire life, I've smoked, I didn't smoke marijuana until I was, uh, I think 21, 22, maybe 23. Smoked one joint, didn't like it. Yes, I did inhale. Not gonna lie about that bullshit. Damn right, in, I inhaled. Didn't like it. I lost track of time, didn't like it. And I've always been the guy that's been scared to lose control, all right? Because I saw what my mom went through. I didn't wanna be like that. I always wanted to be in control of things, be in control of things. So I mentioned one of the other episodes, a guy mentioned, you know, do I try to control still my elements of my reality, every aspect of my reality. Yeah, you're damn right I do. Okay, you're damn right I do because I didn't have that oftentimes when I was a child, you know, and, and because of that, it turns me into a bit of a control freak. So, yeah, um, smoked marijuana four or five times, never really liked it. Um, didn't start drinking until I was 34. When my, when my first wife leaves me, I started to drink at that point, just because I was like, hell, why not? Okay, so at that point I started to drink. I was never, never addicted to drugs, alcohol, anything else like that. My addiction was in those toxic relationships, in, um, in criminal activity, in those unhealthy behaviors. That was my addiction. And I will tell you that that is an addiction. I don't care what 
it, an addiction is not just an addiction to a substance. It can be an addiction to a person. It can be addiction to a relationship, to an idea, to criminal activity. It can be any number of addiction. The, now, my, I just said my mom was an addict. And she was, she was addicted to benzos, you know, Valium, that type of stuff. And she was addicted for uh, four years. She finally gets off of that when she meets my stepfather. Uh, as she meets him, she she goes to a doctor and he, he gives her some pills. I think he got her on Xanax or some, some bullshit. He got her on that and he weaned her off of her. She was addicted. She loved Valium. She was addicted to Valium. So, um, he got her off that Valium addiction. She finally gave up drugs, gave up drinking, everything else. She didn't give up being just an evil motherfucker. She was always that. But she did get off the drugs. Okay? She did not. But the, she was addicted to more than just drugs. She was addicted to those toxic behaviors. My mom was always a person who tested people. You know, she tested people. It was, uh, can I do this to you and you'll still love me? How bad can I treat you and you'll still come back to me? And that's when you're a child, that type of behavior has an effect on you throughout your entire life. Okay. And it ended with me being addicted to toxic people, dysfunctional relationships, uh, criminal activity, things like that. I, I'm not sure if that, if her behavior, well, yeah, it did. There's no need. I mean, you got to tell the truth. There's my choices as an adult are mine, but that upbringing certainly paved the way for that. So it does have an effect. It absolutely does. So my mind, the, but the interesting thing talking about addiction, the first time, the first real realization of addiction for me was with my, I think he's my great uncle. He's passed away now. So my mom's, my mom's aunt, her husband, I think that would make him my great uncle. I don't know. I don't know. And I say, I say aunt instead of aunt, even though I'm in the South because it's got a U in it. I say all these words somewhat different. I say hours instead of airs. You know, three hours passed. No, three hours passed. I also say herbs instead of herb, because it's got a fucking H in it. That's just me. But the first, uh, the first real realization that I had of someone addicted was my great uncle, Bernus was his name, and he was a gambling addict. I mean, I, he was addicted to gambling. This is a man, he lived in Hazard, Kentucky. Lexington, Kentucky was two hours away, 118 miles was the distance to Lexington. And um, Bernice would go and bet on horses. He loved to gamble on horse racing. So, um, and we all, this is one of the things that I kind of regret. We all made fun of him because we didn't understand how bad addiction really is. But we all made fun of this man. He would, he would go and he would he would drive all the way up to Lexington and he would, he would wager on horses and typically he would lose everything that he had that night. And, um, we used to, sometimes we'd go with him and, you know, if he won that night, we'd stop at a steakhouse on the way home and we'd eat steak. If he didn't win that night, we were lucky if we'd stop at a grocery store and get a pack of bologna and a loaf of bread. 
And most of the time you wouldn't get that. And some of the times you'd run out of gas halfway home because he didn't have money to put gas in the car to get home. I remember many times, many times that he would be in Lexington driving home and he would call us at one, two o'clock in the morning because he had ran out of gas. He had ran out of gas. Somebody had picked him up, taken him to a service station, and he had used the service station's phone to call and say, hey, can you guys come and bring me some gas? There were many times like that. This is a man who lost his home. He lost everything he had to that gambling addiction. He lost his home. He had, this, he had a really nice home, and he ended up uh, doing kind of a reverse mortgage before it was a thing. This, this daycare center bought his house because he was completely destitute from gambling. They bought his house and they let the man stay in it until he died. At that point, they took the house, but uh, he lost everything he had. He had, a, he had a great job, everything else, and just became kind of a pariah because of that addiction. The addiction was more important than his job. It was more important than his house. It was more important than his family, his relationships. Every single thing that addiction took precedent over. And that's the first real time that I understood or knew somebody that was addicted. And addiction has been, you know, my mom was addicted. I had two childhood friends that I grew up with. One of them, they were brothers. One of them overdosed on Oxycontin and cocaine on like a Thanksgiving, the next Christmas, the other brother overdoses on Oxycontin and cocaine, both of them die. So addiction has always been around, always been around. Uh, I remember family members of mine, they used to deal in one of my cousins addicted to Oxy, uh, to oxy or, or opiates, addicted to opiates. He's been addicted to opiates for decades four decades. We're the same age. I'm 52. He's 52. I remember the last time I really sat down and saw him, I was in my twenties and he was addicted to them. Then I got a phone call from him, not three or four months ago, and he's still addicted to opiates. Did he say he was? No, he didn't, but his brother damn sure informed me that he is. So he's still addicted. So, and, and I'm going to tell you what I said at Lex Fridman. Someone who's addicted, the addiction is more important than anything else in their lives. You cannot love anyone if you're addicted. And that is why I have such a problem talking about this in this show. Why, I, Instead of recording this yesterday, I sat, sat down to try to record this and I started to think about it. And I was like, Jesus Christ, I don't want to do this. But I know I need to because I got to talk about my addictions. You know, how, how that affected me. I got to talk about that. I got married. So my addiction, as I said, toxic relationships, criminal activity. Boy, that criminal activity, that's one hell of an addiction. It's one hell of an addiction. To me, it's as strong as, as Bernice's problems with gambling. But um, I grew up a criminal. I grew up a criminal. Uh, I've told people before I started, my first crime was 10 years old, shoplifting food for me and my sister so we could eat because my mom used to leave us at home for days at a time. We'd have any food in the house. We couldn't go and eat at our grandparents because they, they 
they wouldn't let us. They they talked bad about. It. They insulted us. They, and when you're a child, when you're a child, and that happens, how do you cope with that? Well, you avoid it. You know, and we had a grandfather that would allow us to bath in uh, once a week. We were allowed a bath a week, and we were allowed that much water. So two inches of water is what we were allowed. And the man would come in and make sure that we hadn't ran any more water. And if he knew we bathed more than once a week, he would raise hell about it. Well, what happens is, is you hide from an individual like that. If we got hungry, we went upstairs to get us something to eat. And because the house, he had lifted the house up so that he lived upstairs and the downstairs he had converted into apartments. So we lived in one of those apartments. And we, if we tried to go upstairs to eat, they would always say something. They would always, you know, talk about about us. So what happens is, is you get to the point where you don't want to do that. So steal food. My sister walks in one day and she's got a pack of pork chops in her hand. And I'm like, where'd you get that? She's like, I stole it. And I'm like, shit, that's a good idea. Let's do that. So we start stealing food. And one of the big secrets about crime is, yeah, you may commit crime out of necessity, but it quickly gets outside of necessity. We look across the way. We needed a sandwich. We wanted a sandwich. So we steal a hoodie. So you can stuff a loaf of bread down the, sh- down the sleeve of that. Get out and start making sandwiches. Well, Kmart's got toys and games and all that. And that's typically the way crime works. You may start with necessity, but it quickly gets away from you. And you start getting things for your entertainment, for your pleasure. So started stealing all that. Mom starts to see the stolen stuff, ask where it came from. I lie and say we found it. And he stands up and says, we stole it. My mom, show me how you did that. And she starts running us as little shoplifters. Goes and gets her mother, my grandmother, to join us as well. That's where my life of crime begins. And as I got older, my sister didn't get addicted to crime. My sister cuts that shit off as soon as she can. She goes off to be a teacher, a parent. Good citizen. Of course, she gets she has problems with anger. I guess she drank some in college. I mentioned that on the Lex Fridman show. Denise calls me upset that I said it, which is interesting because she recorded an episode with Anglerfish Podcast with me where she, she says that, and I pointed that out to her. But she was mad. So I've not spoken to my sister. She's not called me or anything for a while. And I'm hoping that she gets over that some at some point. But I got to say this shit that needs to be said. And I'm going to tell the truth about this shit. So I, as I got older, I got, I did. I, I took part. I wasn't forced. I took part in the types of crimes and scams and all that, that my mom and that entire side of the family was committed because that was my normal. That was my normal until I branched off on my own. I faked a car accident to get married, get the money to, from the insurance to get married, to move from Hazard, Kentucky to Lexington, Kentucky. So I've always, I was always that criminal, always that criminal. First out of necessity, then because I wanted to do it. So I was always that criminal. And my first wife, I made the comment a minute ago that, If you're addicted to something, the addiction always comes first, always comes first. I put criminal activity in front of my first wife, Susan. I did. I would rather, I would, the the committing of crime and that activity was more important than the relationship. It was more important than being truthful to my wife. It was more important than being healthy. 
it was just the most important thing on the planet to me. I was married to her for nine years. It took her nine years to leave me. I lied to her every single day of those nine years. I put criminal activity in front of her every single day of those nine years. Took her three years to find out I was a criminal. The next six years were me telling her I've stopped. I will stop. I'm going to stop just a little while longer. Then finally, it became me looking at her dead in the eyes and telling her, you like spending the money, don't you? Till she finally figured out, oh, he's not about to stop. I'm not the most important thing to him. Crime is the most important thing to him. And she leaves me. So, yeah, criminal activity. And it gets worse. It gets worse. You know, I talk about this person. Uh, I get suicidal after my first wife leaves. And I call a psychologist crying. I tell her I'm a criminal. I tell her what's happened. And she's like, I want you to come in today. And I go in and I tell her everything that's happened. And she, she, she tries to help me. She does. I didn't start drinking, like I said, until I was 34. That was when I was 34. So I started drinking. Didn't do drugs, but started drinking heavily. <laughs> I like me some alcohol. So I started drinking. And... Uh, Saw that psychologist for about four months, and I one night I was just getting lonely and horny. I'd never been to a strip club before. So I go to a strip club, and uh, before Lex Fridman, I had always glossed that over and made jokes about it, that I was the I'm that one guy that falls in love with the first stripper that he sees. And there's truth to that, all right? But I'd always made fun of it. And Lex Fridman, when I sat down with him, I was talking about it. And as I looked at him, I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I even said that during the show. Fuck it. Why not? And I told the truth. And that's the first, and it, it, the first time I was truthful with myself about that. And, the and I told him, I said, I loved that girl. And this is the difficulty of this show today because I was crazy about her. I was, I was absolutely crazy for that woman. I loved Elizabeth. She meant the world to me. But the truth of the matter is, is I was a criminal. And the other truth is, is that criminal activity was more important to me than she was. And she even said it later on, you know, when once, once all the chips fell and I had gotten arrested and everything else, she looks at me at one point and she's like, you could have got a job doing something. And she was absolutely fucking right. The truth of the matter is, is I preferred crime over her. I chose crime over her. I didn't have to do that, but I did. And that Admitting that, that is one hell of a pill to swallow because I was absolutely crazy over her. I was absolutely crazy. And I chose my addiction, criminal activity, hurting people, victimizing people, stealing money, just being a despicable person. I chose that over that relationship. Now, Elizabeth was addicted to cocaine, and I will tell you out of the gate, she was a hell of a lot stronger than I was because when push came to shove, she gave up her addictions. She quit her job. She stopped using Coke, everything else. 
Uh, there's been people that have responded, oh, she was a gold digger and everything else. You know, guys, just because somebody's involved in, in stripping or whatever doesn't mean that they can't love somebody. All right. And I, yeah, maybe, maybe you're right. Okay. I'm not going to argue with it. Maybe you're right. But it doesn't matter whether you're right or not. I'm telling you what my feelings were on it. I'm telling you what happened. I chose criminal activity instead of a uh, trying to have a relationship with somebody that I loved. Okay. And that's a, that's a, that's one hell of a pill to swallow. So the justified madman, he asked me to do an episode on addiction because I talked about that, how someone who's addicted to something, the addiction always comes first. You can't love anybody. If you're addicted to something, you can't. You may want to, but that addiction is always going to come first. That's a fact. It's always going to come first. It takes priority over everything. You're going to choose that before you are that other person. That's what you're going to do. You know, and that's what I did. That's what I did. So I just wanted to share that because. You know, I talked about that on Lex Fridman, and I got to say that for years, Jesus, that was back in the, the last time I saw her was 2005, may have been six, 2005 or six is the last time I saw her, went to prison. And I have, up until Lex Fridman, I had always harbored just guilt you know, I'd always thought I've destroyed that person's life. I've always felt guilty about it and everything else. And I talked about it on Lex Fridman and I felt better. And I had somebody reach out to me and after that and she's okay, dude. And that made me feel a, a world hurt, a, a world better. I'd always thought, you know, I hadn't understood. That's always a learning process for me. I hadn't understood that no, you know, you don't destroy people's lives. People can choose to be healthy. And she certainly did. I'm, I'm, it made me, it made a world of difference to me. And I wanted to talk about that today because it really bothers me that I was the person I've always wanted to just find love. And I was the person who chose criminal activity, chose that addiction over a relationship, over trying to love somebody. That's a horrible, horrible thing. I don't know what else to say about it other than that. Uh, for those who don't know, I, I still consider myself addicted. You know, I, I don't think, just because it's not a substance, I don't think that you can ever say that you're cured. I say I'm in recovery, that I'm continuing to try to do better. And the longer that I do better, the chances increase that I'll continue to do better and not relapse. I've not relapsed in a long time, in a long time, several years now. Well, a few years, several years would be like eight or nine. But, you know, I've been doing this legal thing for uh, since, since 17, 16, 17. And, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I didn't, I didn't relapse during the pandemic. I thought I was going to, I really thought I was going to, but I had established 
that safety net, that support group. And I think that's one of the things I want to talk about that today. So I, I was try I thought about making notes yesterday about what I wanted to talk about, kind of bullet points of the things that I wanted to address. And the more I thought about it, I was like, man, I just, I don't even know what the hell to say, how to approach this topic or anything else. Just get in there and talk for a while. I don't know if this is going to be a good show, but I do know that this is something that I needed to admit so that I could hopefully continue to move forward. You know, since Lex Fridman, I've given presentations where I've talked about that and in every presentation, I no longer make fun of that situation. You know, my, my sister, part of the reason that uh, she had such problems with me and it was because of my relationship with Elizabeth, that, that group, that woman. And uh, for years, I, I, after I got out of prison, I tapped that shit down. You know, I don't, I shouldn't be talking about that. I don't need to mention that I, that I, that I loved her. I need to make fun of that. But the truth of the matter was, is I loved that woman. I did. And I, it, it tears me apart that I chose criminal activity over top of that. And I want people to know I, it's, it's not, it can't be just me that harbors that type of guilt, that whatever that addiction is, whether it be gambling, whether it be criminal activity, toxic relationships, substance abuse, it can't be just me that feels guilty of choosing that above the people and the healthy relationships in your life or my life. It can't be, it, you know, I look back now at Bernice and we used to, we used to make fun of the man, used to talk really bad about him, everything else. But you know, the man was addicted to gambling and I can't imagine, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you change that? I can't imagine what the, the guilt that he felt knowing that he couldn't provide for his family knowing that everyone in the community looked down upon the man, knowing that uh, his family worried about him and just wanted the best for him. And he consistently chose that addiction above that. And at some point he had to know that. I mean, you can only justify that shit so long. At least I hope, I mean, I say that, but I guess that's not right because I, I continue to justify it and not, and, and stuff it under and, and not think about it. And, you know, say this is what I needed to do in order to survive, and that wasn't true. And maybe, maybe that's a lot of the cases and a lot of addictions. But you know, there, I don't know what it, it just it it bothers me thinking about someone who has that addiction, and then other people looking at them like I used to do with Bernice, we used to do making fun of the man, talking about, about him, everything else that bothers me. Cause I don't think that, I don't think that's the proper way to be. I think that's the wrong thing. I was a child when I did that. I'm much more mature now. Some people would say I'm still a child because <laughs> I got my toys with me. I bring my, I got a shitload of toys around the, uh, around the office here. You know, I got my, got that little guy. I got my little Batman figurine. I got all this shit around me around here because I didn't have a lot of access to that when I was a kid. So these days I buy, buy statues and toys. And I, at Christmas, I, uh, 
Christmas, I tell people that, uh, you know, I buy other gifts, but you're going to get a toy because everybody deserves a toy at, at Christmas. doesn't matter if you're uh, an adult or a child. And it bothers me, you know, looking back on my life that I chose that. And I, I these days I think about other people who have addictions that, that choose the addiction over top of that and then justify it. Maybe, maybe they justified all their lives and never come to the conclusion of, of what's happened. You know, they've chosen that addiction over their lives. So, I, you know, how do you overcome that? How did I overcome that? I'm not sure I did. I mean, I, I, uh, I had people that, that cared about me. And that's, that's really the first. And, you know, the thing about it is people who are addicted, who, who are choosing that addiction, your family. I'm a firm believer. And I had my stepmom, Pat. She was a teetotaler. She, by God, she didn't put up with any bullshit. She didn't put up with any lies. And she would cut you off if you didn't change your change things around and do what you were supposed to do. I believe in that. I do. I believe in that. I don't think that family members or loved ones of someone who's addicted can consistently and continually put up with that behavior. You have to cut them off. I've got a friend, uh, Dave Hupper. He's addicted. He's serving. He got his ass out of prison. I served, I met him in prison. He was in prison for a passport forgery and, terrorism and some other bullshit. He was a meth addict as well. He was from a very prominent family in Pennsylvania. And uh, I mean, very prominent, very, had a good life in front of him and everything else. And he just chose to be a fuck up, but he gets his ass out of prison and gets addicted to, to, to meth again, starts running meth back and forth across the Mexican Texas border. Now his release date is I think 2043. All right. He chose all of that chose all of that. And as mom, his dad died. Once he got out of prison, the first time his dad died and his mom, as soon as his dad died, his mom cuts his ass off. I'm not giving you any more money. You're done. As long as you're associating with these people, as long as you're using drugs, you ain't getting shit from me that I got to tell you, that's the exact right thing to do. You got to be able to cut off the people who are screwing up. You got to be able to do that. You can't continue to be that enabler of giving them money, support, everything else. You can't do that, of letting them take advantage of you. So I do believe in that. But here's my thing. I believe in cutting them off. But, see, there's that but. But when it's evident that, they are, that they're really trying, that they've chosen to turn their lives around, you got to be able to put that shit to the side and come back in and try to help because it, it takes the help of other people. The, the person who's addicted, like me, you've got to make that conscious decision to turn your life around, to say, I'm done. I'm done. I'm going to choose to be healthy. you got to be able to do that. you got to mean that shit. And to me, that means hitting rock bottom. You know, that there were many times on this journey, once I started getting arrested and everything starts falling apart, there were many times that I thought I hit rock bottom. Shit, no, I hadn't hit rock bottom. I still had a, a whole lot more falling to do, a whole lot more traveling to do before I got to that rock bottom. That rock bottom, my dad tells me that that rock bottom was uh, after I got caught on the escape, that he, he came to visit me at a county jail in Lexington, Kentucky, and he, he still tells me that after this day that, Brett, that right there was your bottom. And I believe the man. I believe the man. I didn't call it. He called it.
So you got to meet that rock bottom. You got to make that decision that things are not working out for you. <laughs> and you're, 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 you're ready to give up the ghost and do things right. And when that's done, I think those people who have cut you off, they need to be realizing that, hey, he's really trying or she's really trying and be willing to come back in and try to help you, but also be willing to cut you back off again if you can't get shit right. But you got to realize, too, that the path to recovery is never a straight line. It's not. You're always going to fall back. But the idea, understand that you're going to fall back to a degree. But as long as you continue moving forward, you're going to get there. You're going to fucking get there. So it's, it's, it's that process. So what I did when I made that decision, I had people that cared about me. I had my sister. I had my wife, Michelle, who's, who's, who's absolutely great for me. I had her. Then I had the FBI that helped me. And at the same time, what I do is I reach out and I start to build a support group not just of family members and people that I knew, but I start to reach out to my peers. You know, Christopher Anderson, I talked, he, he mentioned there, you surround yourself with who you want to be. So I started to surround myself with law enforcement, with security professionals, with people in that industry that I wanted to be like. I started to, and, and I didn't hide who I was. Hey, I'm a criminal. I, I've done this shit. I was very open about it. And I started to talk about it. And I started to associate myself with that. And I knew that these people would be looking at me. I knew that I would have, I would have that peer pressure. And I've been, historically, I've been the guy that never bows into peer pressure. But at that point, I made the decision that, yes, I want these people to be my peers. I want to be, I want to make sure that, that I'm part of this community, be part of something, not be this lone individual out doing things by myself anymore. So I made that decision. I built that support group, that safety net. And I think that's part of it. You've got to be able to do that. You've got to be able to rely on a safety net of individuals that will help look out for you. You've got to surround yourself, not with the people that you've been surrounded with, but with people who you want to be like. Connect with people who you want to be like, and you'll become like those people. You'll, you'll rise to the occasion. I promise you, you'll rise to the occasion. My granddad used to say, if you associate with shit, you're going to get some of it on you. You are. You are who you associate with, like it or not. And so start to associate with people you want to be like. I've mentioned it before. People, places, and things. You've got to give up those toxic behaviors, those toxic people, those toxic places, those toxic things you used to do. You've got to give that up. Teetotally. There's a reason that, uh, that people in AA are so adamant. You know, they, they're, they're some of the, you know, you look at some of these people and you're like, man, that guy's way overboard. Well, no, he's not way overboard. He's been through the shit and for him to be healthy, this is what he has to do. All right. He's chosen to be like that. He, because he knows that if he's not like that, that he could very well backslide into those past behaviors. So he's way the hell out there. More power to him is what I say. Whatever you need to do to be healthy, by God, do it. All right. That's all I got to say. I don't know how long this episode's ran. Ah, probably too long, Brett. But look, I, I'm a firm believer. This idea of addiction. For those who have, who, who may be addicted to something, 
you really have to understand that you are choosing that addiction above everything else, above relationships. You're not loving the other person that's in your life. You're loving that addiction more because you're choosing that every single day more than you are that person. I've been there. I've done it. It's horrible. All right. I've seen people who have done it. It's horrible. So you got to accept that. I've had people that, that commented on the Friedman's show that, oh, that's not right. Yeah, by God, it's right. Every single day, you're choosing that addiction more than you are the other people that are important to you because that addiction is more important, which means that you can't love anything except that addiction. That's the love of your life. Whatever that is, substance, behavior, whatever that is, that's what you choose. So you got to accept that. You got to accept that. If you could accept that, I'll tell you what, you start processing that shit. That starts eating away at you that, hey, you know, this is more important to me than anything else. And if that, if you can come to understand that, I promise you that come to me, that's that first curve, man, where you start to understand that you can get away from that stuff. You start to accept it. Then you process it. Then you start to act. Okay. It's that, it's that CBT training that I went through. You know, your thoughts determine your feelings, your feelings determine your actions. So accept it, accept it for the people who have family members who are addicted to something. It's hard. It's hard. You know, understand the power of that addiction. Understand that. Understand that you cannot continue to enable that. That you do not have to choose to be on the other end of that. To be victimized by that or be used by someone who's addicted. You have to be able to cut that person off. If it's your husband, if it's your son, if it's a friend, you got to be able to cut that person off. But you also got to be able to understand that, hey, there might come a point when they're able to come to terms with that and, and start trying to be healthy. And you got to be willing to accept that, to not hold that against them, to understand that that addiction is a very powerful thing. All right. I guess I'm doing some kumbaya episodes these days, right? <laughs> Brent's talking all kumbaya bullshit. Uh, maybe, but I believe in it. You know, I don't know. I don't, I'm not, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a counselor. I can just tell you what the shit that I've been through and some of the stuff that I've learned. All right. Uh, maybe it helps somebody. I don't know. I guess I'm doing it today because it helps me. It's uh it's a real tough pill to swallow, admitting that, uh, admitting shit like that. All right. Real tough pill. Look, I'm Brett Johnson. We'll get back on the train. Uh, probably the next episode is going to be a lot more high energy than this one. Probably going to get some of those damn voices because I got to cope with this bullshit I've talked about today. So you go some of these voices, some of this attitude, everything else on the next episode. I don't know what we're going to talk about. Maybe synthetic fraud. We'll see. But look, I'm Brett Johnson. Truly, I want to take the time to thank everyone for taking the time to listen to me. You ain't got to do that. But I sure I sure should appreciate you taking the time to listen to me. I've given me the opportunity to talk. I've given me the opportunity to, to have my life turned around and living the life that I live today. I, I truly appreciate that. I truly do. If I can help anybody out there, I'll do what I can. I don't know what that might be, but I'll do what I can. So as we close the show, what do we say? We say stay safe, stay secure, and stay vigilant. We also say at the end of the day, this is the Brett Johnson Show. Just do the right damn thing. If nothing else, just do the right damn thing. I am Brett Johnson. I want to thank you guys so much for taking the time to listen to me. I do appreciate it. Until next time.
Take care.